Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. So last time we were uh, talking, talking about the applications of operating conditioning, um, the idea of uh, it's been especially useful in therapy kind of things for um, a lot of practice people. Uh, also, the idea of token economies uh, used, in, used to be used a lot in psychiatric uh, facilities and prisons, not so much anymore. Yeah, there is a, a, I understand why it wouldn't be used too much because, of course, if you're reinforcing behavior, Say like smiling, you know, interaction for somebody who's schizophrenic. The problem there is that once they get out of the uh, institution, no one's giving them poker chips anymore, right? So I can kind of see that. There's also the concern about people's rights for some reason. How dare you manipulate their behavior? Except that that's what people do. I never really fought that criticism. Industrial uh, organizational applications. A lot of these kind of things are used in IO psych, uh, which I don't know a great deal about. And of course, just generally behavior therapy. Um, so the idea of dealing with uh, phobias and philias and those kind of things, uh, it's been used quite a bit there uh, to control behavior that's very specific. The beautiful thing about operant conditioning and class conditioning is that they can control very specific behaviors, right? So. Things like phobias and philias, phobias being when you're afraid of something, philias being your sort of really like something too much, um, they tend to be quite specific. I'm afraid of flying. I really like women's shoes, whatever, right? Those are specific things. And as long as they're specific phobias, specific philias, this can actually work, this stuff. Uh, it, there's been a little tiny bit of success with um, pedophiles, and I've talked about that, but it ain't much. Because that's kind of general, right? That's kids. Okay? But you think about, like I said, the example that I brought up before of um, people that really like women's shoes, break into their homes and steal their shoes. That's specific enough that it has had some effect, apparently, there. Those are a lot of cases, those kind of things. But for phobias and such, yeah, very laws are specific as laws are like agoraphobia. Not going to work there. Uh, you can think of things like uh, smoking cessation, people learning to not smoke cigarettes anymore. Uh, again, behavior therapy, pretty successful there. And I know we have a course in behavior modification here, I think that's running this term actually. Uh, and uh, basically, you, it's using these kind of techniques to control, again, pretty specific behavior. Pretty specific behavior. Now, you might say, none of this is anything new. We've all known, anybody who's got a pet or a kid knows that you give them things for stuff you like, and you take stuff away from stuff they don't like, and it works. Um, but the thing is, most of us really aren't aware of the contingencies in our lives and aren't aware of these schedules. Um, in fact, probably until you thought about this stuff in this class, you didn't realize that a lot of your behavior really is governed by schedules of reinforcement. My favorite one always to students, as I mentioned before, is the idea that Test, uh, tests actually reinforce studying behavior on a fixed interval schedule. Like it's beautiful, you actually see the scallop kind of thing. Or maybe it's FR, who knows? But it's certainly a fixed schedule, right? And then you can think about a class that has pop quizzes, you tend to study a lot more, and it's a lot more of a steady amount. So it's a variable schedule because you don't know when it's coming. 
right? So a lot of our behavior actually is governed by this. We don't know it. So what you're doing is you're systematically applying this stuff, and that's why behavior analysts, people who do this kind of work, are actually paid pretty well, because what they have to do is observe the person's life and break it down into what schedules are controlling what. So it, it's, yeah, is this stuff we all know? Sure. But it's doing it systematically knowing what you're doing. I think most of us know that viruses cause colds, but that doesn't make you an MD. <coughs> and the other thing is, like, who cares really if they're, they're not new ideas? They actually work. So the criticism is, these, this is nothing new. And yeah, it's true, but it works. So it doesn't really bother me. Right? It's, and again, for people with autism, this, this, this has been, um, it, this has saved people's lives. Like the quality of their lives. It really, really has. Both parents and kids. <coughs> because it also isn't easy being a parent of a, uh, an autistic person. Right? I'm, not, I'm not doing that for you to make you feel bad for me. Though if you want to, that's good. You know, I'll take it. I'll take it. I know when people aren't used to it, they don't know me yet, and I say something like, I haven't done my your test yet. I'm blind and my son has autism. People are like, oh my god, what, what am I supposed to do now? I'm just using it as an excuse. So it's interesting stuff like I said, it works, but it has to be specific. This wouldn't be working on this kind of therapy, wouldn't be on something like, I have real trouble relating to my mother-in-law. That's not that good. I can't make a commitment to a relationship. Go see Dr. Phil. Or even better yet, a real psychologist. Uh, rather than that this is gonna work for something that general, that sort of free-floating, right? You just, or like free-floating anxiety, it's not gonna work for that. All right. So, this is an important chart. This is a chart that makes an excellent test question. Suddenly everyone writes it down. Um, these are terms that we use in operant conditioning and they're easily confused. Does the behavior increase or does it decrease? That's the first question, the behavior interested. The second thing is, was something given, was a stimulus presented? Is something given by the experimenter or is something removed or omitted or taken away by the experimenter? So the thing we, technically, we tend to think of, positive reinforcement, is something where we give a stimulus and it increases behavior. It doesn't say anything there about it being pleasant or nice or involving smiles or hugs. I think you just positive reinforcement with my children. Yet maybe you do. But I think what you mean is you like to say nice things to them. Tests being presented increase studying behavior. It's positive reinforcement. Very often they feel good because things will increase behavior often. You know, that makes sense. You have food, wine, cakes. That's, that's a reference to a movie. Uh, an Irish film, Whitnall and I. You really should see it. It's very funny. Anyway, like the 80s. <laughs> but a stimulus is presented. It doesn't say that a happy stimulus is presented, does it? Just a stimulus. This is the one that gets me. 
say negative reinforcement because you always hear people, I don't like to use negative reinforcement. No, I will never spank my children. That's not negative reinforcement. Okay, I have certain things that bother me and, you know, that I, I, I'm probably too passionate about. <laughs> um, negative reinforcement, see, you've taken something away and it increases behavior. That's what negative reinforcement is. Because the, re the, the, the anything that increases behavior, right? And the stimulus is removed. So give me an example of what you think is negative reinforcement. Take something away and increases behavior. Oh, please. Take them toys away. Yeah, do we do what? Uh, I don't know, to make them clean their room. Yeah, that'll work. Sure. <coughs> Docking your allowance. If you don't, take out the garbage. It increases garbage taking out behavior. Right? Oftentimes you're taking away something you love, the kid likes, or the animal likes, or the uh, whoever likes. Right? But it doesn't have to be that way, but very often. Now, again, we've increased the likelihood of behavior. If we're, if we're decreasing the likeliness of behavior and we're presenting stimulus, we call that punishment. The thing that people always call negative reinforcement. No. So, I don't know, well, spanking's a great example. Do something a kid doesn't, a person doesn't like, you hit him. Right? Swear, watch your mouth out with soap. Apparently they didn't do that in my family. Because <laughs> we don't be washing our own mouth out with soap all the time. Mom included, by the way. No, I mean, she doesn't have a foul out of mouth enough like my brother or my sister. My dad did. <laughs> if we remove it and the behavior decreases, that's called a mission, and that's that's actually really easy to learn. And we won't really talk too much about this. It just sort of completes the, the chart. So remember, negative reinforcement and punishment are two different things. And this is something that people often have trouble with because we tend to misunderstand the word reinforcement as meaning that it feels good or something. And okay, it often does. So people can use it if you, if you follow my posts on Facebook, which I don't know why you don't, great content on Google all the time, you know? Like about how I just like, broke 20,000 in my Xbox game score on the weekend. That's right. I'm pretty impressed, I can tell. Finished the Medal of Honor Warfighter campaign. So I did, I made the world safe for democracy. Um, and I, I posted actually a couple weeks ago, you know, learning test smart. And I put the, the, me in the standard deviation. And a colleague of mine at Villanova University of Philadelphia, Mike Brown, said, did they get the question about the uh, difference between negative reinforcement and punishment? Because we all have that question on all our tests. And, the same and I said, no, that would probably be on the next test. Again, this makes a great test question. I am just saying So we can think of four possible things that can happen. Okay, behavior increase, decrease. Did the experimenter give something or take something away? <coughs> okay, questions about that before we move on? Okay, let's talk about something called avoidance. This is using something called a shuttle box. So 
So this is a little piece of apparatus, about that big, okay, so it's not too big. Uh, and it's got a floor you can electrify, so you can shock a rat, okay. Um, and what happens is, typically half the box is painted one color, or one brightness because it's rats, so half of it's black, half of it's white. Could be a different pattern, but usually black and white, it's easy to discriminate for the rat. You turn the light on, and if you, just as the light sort of comes on, the light's a CX, then we think of it that way, and then partway through the light, the amount of shock comes on. And it stays on until the rat moves to the other part of the box. So the light comes on, you get shocked. What's the first, the first sort of trial? The rat just runs around like an idiot, perhaps. Eventually, he gets to the other part of the box. Then he's got a break, he's standing there for a while, and then the light comes back on that other side, he's on his shot. Goes the other side of the box. You can guess pretty quickly that rats learn this. Oh, there's a light. And now they're totally avoiding any shot. Oh, that's I'll be over here now. There's the light. Oh, let me see how loud I can wait. Oh, sick. <coughs> over here. And they're like, there's the light, I think. Uh, oh, will I put my foot there? No, I won't. Because the light predicts a shot. Pretty cool. Set up, because when you think about this, first thing they're doing is they're going from escape to avoidance. At first they escape the shot. They run around, eventually get away from the area that's, on, that's where the floor is like on fire, and it's actually electrified. Though it would be cool if you made it on fire. No, it wouldn't. That would be mean. Or shocking if it didn't mean at all. Um, but after a while, it's like, yeah, light comes on, no problem. So over here, light comes on, yeah, no problem. Back over here, no big deal. So now they're not, they're not getting a shock anymore. They're avoiding it. They're avoiding it. That's kind of neat. Except it's a paradox. It is, in fact, the avoidance paradox. Because, okay, I get the idea that the shock makes movement happen. I get that. It's unpleasant, they want to move away. Okay? But eventually they don't get any shocks. They just get a light that signals a shock and they just move it back and forth. Why in the hell shouldn't it be the case that there should be extinction? They're not getting any pairings of light and shock anymore. They're just getting light. So what should happen should be, right? Now, because think about this sort of learning theory terms. They've learned that, well, think of CS and EUS if you want. Light predicts shock. Shock's coming. Get it over here. And they've learned that light predicts shock. Shock's coming, over here. Shock's coming. Now, what should happen eventually? You have no pairings of light and shock at all anymore. They're gone. Because all you're getting is avoidance. You're not, you're not getting the, the shock. Shouldn't they eventually, because of extinction, stop avoiding and go back to escaping because they have to relearn light predicts shock? <coughs> so you see the, the, the paradox there? Shouldn't that happen? But it doesn't work. Do you see the paradox? Do you really 
Okay? Because remember, they're not getting any pairings anymore. The light, there's no light shot pairings anymore. So they should be avoiding, sorry, they're not, it's, a, it's an extinction. So actually, there's no shock anymore. There's nothing to stop them. Why is this working? Shouldn't it be that it goes like, Avoidance, 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 charge! Avoidance, 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 and they'd be learning. But that's not at all how it goes. And in fact, this is it's a really hard, uh, avoidance behavior is a very hard thing to extinguish. It's very hard to extinguish uh, because, of course, the rats aren't getting any like our parents, yet they're still avoiding it. Well, how does that work? They should be avoiding this. Right? So they're avoiding it, and, but you can't extinguish it. You can't get rid of this behavior. It takes forever. You can, but it takes days and days and days and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of trials of just like no shock, and eventually they learn that just like no shock, they don't get a shock and they're fine. But it should go back and forth. It should go like a pendulum, and it doesn't. So people started thinking about this. They said, well, how the hell is this going to work? Because on the face of it, this is boring enough behavior in you know, a piece of apparatus. But when you get to the subbies, it's actually kind of, it's kind of cool. Because I don't see how it can work. So there's a couple of different theories here. The two-factor theory, what they're doing is they're learning a CSUS pairing. And that what they're escaping from now <coughs> is the CS, is the light. Because as soon as they go to the other side of the box, the light goes off. So this is saying they're not avoiding shock, they're escaping the CS. The CS paired with the US, there's factor one, it's classical condition. Right? So it's the CS, the US, the CS, that's the, the light predicts the US, that's a shock. Factor two is instrumental learning, or optical condition, we'll, we'll call it. And what's supporting the behavior is, well, it's negative reinforcement, right? It's removing the light. When the light goes off, the light goes off once they've moved to the other part of the box. So you've got both classical condition and operating condition. You've got the CSUS pairing and negative reinforcement. Okay. Questions about that? Does that make sense, that theory? <clears throat> Sounds like a reasonable description. Right? And animals will avoid a CS that creates shock in another context. So this is something that says, okay. If I teach them in oval, this oval, this skinner box over here, that just a light breaks the shock, no avoidance, just like look, light and the floor hurts. Tastes like burning. Light, floor, light, floor. That's right, light, shock. You train them up like that, then you put them in the shuttle box, they will avoid that light. They will learn to avoid the light. The light that never produced shock in that context. Okay, well that makes it seem like they're afraid of lights. They're pretty shocked. And if they can avoid it, that's negative reinforcement, it'll support the behavior. Okay, that's not bad. 
That's some evidence pointing towards the two-factor theory. But does the CS, to make this, for this to work, the CS has to be, has to be the sphere, doesn't it? Right? For the, for the theory to be true, the CS really has to be something that induces fear. How do we test that? How do we test if the CS induces fear? Pardon? Well, no, we want to see CER would be what I would do, right? Because does it, we're just going to pair it up light shock, light shock in one context, and then put in, train up to push bars, and then see if the light that was predicting a shock, it could be a tone, but we use a light. Um, does it suppress behavior? And it doesn't always. It depends, it seems, on the experiment. Sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. So the results of these experiments uh, are really, uh, at best, they're equivocal. In other words, about half the time in the experiments, in these experiments, it seems that it works, that this, that this CS will produce suppression. Another time, another half the time, it doesn't seem to if it's in another context, right? Because usually you see ER, it's all in the same box. Whereas we know that a light, what they've learned about in a different context, different Skinner box, right? They can then take it into, a, into the shuttle box and, and, and they'll avoid it. So maybe something else is going on because. It really, for this to work, the CS has to be an unpleasant experience for the animal for it to want to avoid it. And if it doesn't suppress behavior, it can't be a, an unpleasant experience. Right? So, that's really... So maybe avoidance itself is reinforcing. It's called the one factor theory. Or as I like to call it, the really weird lame theory. Because I just don't understand how it's that different. Because what's happening here is all you're doing by doing that is saying, oh, you know how that works? Avoidance is reinforcing. Experiment, and that's it. Done. Seems to me like all you've done there is just describe what happened. So I don't like the one-factor theory because I don't think it explains a whole hell of a lot. However, how do we test if avoidance itself is reinforcing? What we can do is we can do what's called Sigmund avoidance. Because it's named after a guy named Sigmund. What he did in his experiment is he did unsignaled avoidance. So there's no light anymore. Will they just learn to move away from where the shock was without a signal? Without a signal. So every 30 seconds, half the box, the floor's on fire. You know, the floor's electrified. Okay, so every 30 seconds, it's just, then it's 30 seconds over here, then it's over here. And the rats learn at about 28 seconds, go over here. So they avoid it. That is unsignaled or signaled avoidance. So it shows that the avoidance itself is reinforcing. This is, this is what Sigmund said. This shows that avoidance itself is reinforcing. There's a problem here. Uh, there's, a, there's a phenomenon called temporal conditioning, which is if I do this every 30 seconds, the only way you can do this, by the way, is having it, they can never learn to avoid it if you don't have a predictable time, right? It's the only way it can work. But the problem is temporal conditioning says that time itself can be a CS. 
the passage of time itself can be a CS. Right? So if time, the passage of time is a CS, then we're still back to, is it one factor or two? Hmm. So we still can't solve this freaking problem. How do you solve problems like decision avoidance? Yeah. West Side Story. Geeky version. Mm -hmm. Huh. What do we do? Now, what we could do, Seligman and Johnson, Clive Seligman, or Marty Seligman, Clive Seligman, it's a totally different guy. Marty Seligman uh, and Johnson, who I don't know, uh, did, came up with a cognitive theory. And this, I mean, I like this. Uh, I studied animal cognition, so I like cognitive theories. Uh, but this one makes a lot of sense because I think it helps understand helps us understand this. The animal learns two things. It gets two sets of expectations. Two sets of expectations. What does it learn? The animal has learned that you get no shock if you respond. And you get a shock if you don't respond. So it's learned two things, two rules. And animals will learn rules. Uh, when we talk about animal cognition in a couple of weeks, you'll find out that a lot of what we'll talk about is how animals learn rules of a game. In, a, in essence, so they're learning how, uh, how, how an experiment works. And the rules of this game are, if I respond, I don't get a shock, and I get a shock if I don't respond. Those two rules. explains how slow the extinction is. In fact, it's almost impossible to extinguish avoidance behavior in shuttle box. Why does it do that? Because as long as the animal keeps doing it, both these things, both these rules are made, uh, they're pretty good value increases, let's say that. Okay? So I get no shock if I respond, and I get a shock if I do not respond. So look what happens. I avoided one, moved over here. And it's reinforced this idea that if I respond, I'll get a shock. Now what happens if I screw up once and get a shock? I get this, shock if I don't respond, and oh, it would have been no shock had I responded. So we have two rules to get rid of. How would we test this? Well, there is one. We have to remove the response to see if we can extinguish the behavior. If we can take the ability to respond away, right? If we take the ability to respond away, then we should be able to get extinction. And in fact, this is what Selwyn Johnson did. You do what's called shock avoidance response logic. Now, this is not just putting an insurmountable barrier between two halves of a shuttle box, because that would just be mean. Watching the rat try to climb up this thing and it's, it falls and it gets shocked again. That wouldn't be nice. It'd be funny a couple of times. And, no, it wouldn't. It would be mean. No, you don't do it. Instead of the avoidance response being Shuttling back and forth, it's pushing a bar. 
So it's pushing a bar. The animal learns that as long as I push the bar, when the light comes on, I don't get shocked. Perfect. Right? So as long as I... So remember, this is about responses. This is not about the response of running back and forth in a shuttle box. It's not just about this. Very few, you know, this I'm known for my shuttle box impression. It's not just that. It's a response. Any kind of response. Oh, we do. We can put a bar up. Push the bar. Oh, you like it? You got it. This is easy. Here it comes again. Here it comes again. Oh, they took the bar out. What am I going to do? I guess I'll just get shocked. <laughs> There's nothing I can do. So we take the bar out for a couple of trials. Right? The bar's gone now. He can't respond. There's nothing he can do. Hmm. Now let's put the bar back in and see what he does. You know what? He has to relearn to push, to push the bar just like he would in any normal experiment. We have get extinction because we've removed the ability for the animal to respond. But look, see, these are all about responding, these two rules. Responding and not responding. If I've taken away the ability to respond at all, these rules will become, now, are these now the rules of the game? Well, no, apparently the game has changed. I haven't figured it out yet, but I don't, I should forget these rules. These are now useless rules. Right? They've changed the rules, just like in the movie Rollerball, the 1975 one, where they change it so there's no, no time limit and no substitutions at the end, and Jonathan E. scores anyway and wins. Nobody's seen that movie. You should all watch the movie Rollerball from 1975. Not the bad 2002 remake. Watch the original, it was awesome. James Conn. Anyway, change the rules, middle of the game. Rules are gone, I can't respond anymore at all, so what the, I guess I could forget about that. Then, you know, you put take him out, put him back in, put the bar back in, he's like, well, I don't know what we're supposed to do now, there's a bar here. It's gotta relearn the rules. Hey, learn it again, they're fine. And in fact, there's some sort of spontaneous recovery, so they learn it more quickly than they did the first time, etc. So people were caught up in the idea of the shuttle box and didn't do what we would call a task analysis. They didn't look and say, task analysis, they didn't look and say, okay, I know what it is. They respond to avoid shock. Right? Huh. So this is one of the first uh, things in animal learning. And this is around the same time as uh, the Schroeder Wagner model in the classical stuff. So it's late 60s, early 70s. This is one of the first times that people said, well, let's go with the cognitive theory, the animal's representation of how the world works. It's learned two rules. This was a somewhat um, controversial thing at the time, except that it actually predicted the data. So it's, a, it's the best model here is this cognitive theory of Sonia Johnson. Questions on that? Now, Bob Holes has an idea. He talked about species-specific defense responses, SSDRs. And he said, look, the reason why in rats 
for example, it's really hard to remove that response, is that it's a species-specific defense response. They run away. Right? And it's hard to, it's almost like saying, look, this is kind of hardwired, it's ready to go, kind of like the taste diversions, right? It's like, this is ready for this kind of situation. When something is threatening, something's going to hurt you, you run away. It's hard to teach an animal, don't run away. Right? And it's interesting, when you look at rats, in, in, in situations of unavoidable shock, where you just shock the floor all the time, they have a response. What they do is they jump onto their backs and they lie on the floor during the shock because the fur doesn't conduct electricity as well as their feet do. They basically play dead. Right? And it works for them because they don't get nearly as much of a shock. So it's a, it's a, it's a response that a, that a rat would make. I'm uh, not entirely sold on this. I like the idea that something as important as running away from getting something that can hurt you is hard to extinguish. I get that. All I think he's done here is giving it a name. And just giving something a name doesn't really explain anything to me. But he has said it's also species-specific, etc. except that running away to me is species-specific. I mean, but, but nonetheless, running away is a pretty good strategy. So a lot of this stuff then was done with unavoidable shock, and, and, and Marty Seligman really made his career looking at learned helplessness. In fact, he started out as an animal learning guy and totally moved over to psychopathology and studying depression. Because he said, what we can do is we can have dogs, use dogs or something, and we can shock them, and they cannot avoid it. And it's not signal either. It's just random shocks. Unpredictable, unavoidable, unescapable shocks. Wow. You know what the dogs learn to do? Lie down and whimper. They don't sleep right. They don't eat. Nothing. They, they, they become, you know, dogs are social dogs. They see people and they start jumping up and down. They want to be they're rubbing their nose all over you, they're smelling your crotch, you know, they're trying to get you to, this is what dogs do, trying to get you to rub their tummies. Not these dogs, they just look at you like, yeah, I long for the release of death over right now. Just kill me now. It's like they've been listening to the cure. Every second of your album, the cure of funny. They have a happy album, depressing album, depressing album. It's like they've all become Kurt Cobain. Is this depression? Now the thing is, he said this, and it looks a lot like depression. They don't eat, they don't sleep, or they sleep like crazy. You know, with depression, people have insomnia, or they have lots of insomnia. You know, sleep the lots of I don't know. But uh, they got supersomnia, they got hypersomnia. They do a lot of sleeping, or they don't sleep. They don't eat. They don't get up on their knees. You know, dogs are social. They come see people. Dogs and people. We've been together for 100,000 years. Easily. Not these guys. They just like lie in there like they're depressed. 
And he said, look, depression, this is depression. I said, yeah, but this is, have they given them MAIs? Or? I do believe that has been done, uh, and it does seem to have some effect, yeah. Yeah. Um, somebody stopped giving, giving them antidepressants, and I do believe it helps. Uh, I think I've read that. Uh, I know somebody did work like that, because they were testing... Uh, I know somebody who was testing for a drug company, uh, testing MAOIs using dogs and their illnesses. Or actually, not tricyclics, uh, SSRIs. Um, is this depression? Well, you know, it's interesting because if you, is it just being shot randomly that's doing it? No. Because if you have random shocks to other dogs that the dogs can predict it, in other words, a light turns on them or a shock happens, they don't get learned helplessness. They get, I hate lights, right? But they don't get the learned helplessness. And when you think about depression, now again, I haven't taken psychopathology, or as we used to call it back in the old days, abnormal psychology, which I think is a fine name, but whatever. I haven't taken that since 1987. So it's been a long time. But I can say this, that people that are depressed tend to have a really external locus of control, right? It's like, Everything, nothing I do matters, right? If you must know somebody, or maybe somebody in here, you don't have to share that with us, no, you know. But someone in here is probably teaching SSRIs. I mean, just, chances are in our society today that someone here has been diagnosed being depressed or dysthymic, and they're taking SSRIs where you know somebody that is. And what are those folks like? Very often when they're not taking their medication or going to their cognitive behavioral therapy, they believe that everything they do screws up and there's nothing that they can do that works, so they just withdraw and do nothing. Right? right? So that's a pretty common part of depression, is that you, you, you believe that nothing you do works. The self-serving bias that we all have, which is like actually kind of delusional, <laughs> that, that, that oh I can when I do this, things will be better. That goes away in depressed people. Depressed people have the, everything I do screws up. This is why, for example, at the depths of depression, people, the chance of people uh, taking their own lives is actually lower than it is when they start therapy and they start drugs because they get just enough self-confidence they think they can actually pull off killing themselves. At the very depths of depression, people don't try to kill themselves because they figure, I'll screw that up too. So, the world becomes unpredictable to the dogs that are, have to learn helplessness. But when it is predictable for dogs that, and this is true of other animals, but these original dogs, for the ones that can predict a horrible, nasty, unpleasant event, they don't get depressed. They don't get learned helplessness. You've taught these other dogs that they're, you know what, pal, there is nothing you can do. I'm just going to randomly shock you. And I'm doing it for science. These are techniques, by the way, that are used in what we might call enhanced interrogation. It's not shocks necessarily, though it's sometimes enhanced. It's just things like, oh, the lights are on again. Oh, wake up. Oh, they're off again. Just random, unpredictable things. Right? And they try to break people. 
psychology being used for evil instead of good there. Hmm. I don't know that this is depression. Because this would suggest to me that all this is this a model of depression? I'll buy that. I'll totally buy that. Is this the same as major depressive disorder? Well, not everybody who has major depressive disorder. Like, no, let's rephrase that. Many people who have major depressive disorder have gone through something that triggers a very bad experience of some sort, and it lasts longer than you know six weeks or whatever the symptoms, and then they get diagnosed, right? But most of us, most of us, when we have a bad event in our lives, this doesn't happen, and we've had that same horrible event. So there's something else going on with depression that isn't just about learning that you have no control over your life. So I don't think it's quite depression completely, but I think it's a decent model of depression. I'll say that. I'll say that. All right. Questions about that? It's kind of interesting. It's, it's sad because it's part of depressed people and just shot their dogs. You know. Okay. Punishment. Sometimes you say, "Is it the opposite of reinforcement?" Hmm. Well, sort of, kind of, yeah. But not completely. Okay? So, sort of. See, because punishment controls behavior. (laughs) And so is reinforcement. Well, that's good. So they're similar. Uh, I'm I'm giving something, but I'm giving something that makes behavior less likely, that's punishment, instead of giving something that makes behavior more likely. So... It's kind of opposite. The difference between punishment and reinforcement is that punishment has to be given at full intensity. On the first trial, where it won't work. You don't gradually work up to, to, to a punishment, you right away give the full intensity of a shock or whatever it may be. It has to be given immediately after the behavior you're interested in making less likely. So the, these two things here, then this is not so much, this is so much like uh, learning positive reinforcement per se. This is, it's got to be right after the behavior you're interested in, right? We know that from Guthrie and Horton, going back to the 1920s and such, with their puzzle boxes and their high-speed cameras, right? So we know that, that we have to give it immediately. Well, that's, that's just like learning, okay? Just like positive reinforcement. It has to be given after every behavior, every time the behavior happens. You can't give punishment on a schedule. It doesn't work. It's not going to control the behavior. And learning works, like positive reinforcement works better to control behavior on a schedule, right? It works better on a schedule. So positive reinforcement works better on a schedule, but and so there's negative reinforcement. Uh, but punishment works better on what we would call just like CRF, right? Every single behavior you give. Just think about it. You can't give punishment on a schedule. And just think of an example. Some people, when they're kids, have their mouths washed out with soap and they swear. Which I think, there's a word for that, I believe it's called child abuse. 
But uh, the people do that. Right? Okay. Now, <coughs> what if you said every tenth time you swear, you're going to get your mouth washed out with soap? Well, then the time your mom washes your mouth with a little soap, you look at her, and when she's done, you say, Look, bitch, <laughs> it's nothing going to happen. She's got the one. I'm really pissed off at your mom. That's two. You can't piss. I'm the kind of person who washes mouth and also thinks pisses a swear. I'm going to tell it that. She already explodes down for some reason. I can go on, you can swear, you can call her all kinds of horrible names. You get up to nine and you stop and you just look at your mom and go, <laughs> schedule, eh? Enjoy that. Walk away. It's not going to work. That's not going to control behavior. Right? It, it just simply doesn't control behavior to give punishment on a schedule. So there it is kind of opposite. So it has different properties that reinforce the punishment. Some of them are the same. I think given immediately is clearly the same. Um, full intensity is pretty much the same, but you don't have to always do that with reinforcement. This is exactly the opposite. So is it the opposite? Kind of, but not really. Discuss the similarities between reinforcement and punishment. There's another fine test question. Just saying. Right? So, questions about that? Does this make sense? It, it controls behavior. I'm not gonna, you know, putting aside the morality issues, it controls behavior. There's no, there's no argument there. It, it, if it's done properly, it controls behavior. Okay. The other thing that punishment does is it, is it has an anti-motivational effect. Um, if I have punished you, and you could be a human, you could be a rat, no matter what, we're doing some behavior, it makes all behaviors a little less likely. It generalizes a great deal. A great deal more than reinforcement does. And you know, as a kid, if, if, if you were punished for something, you didn't just go back and do all the other stuff and not that one thing, you sort of sat in your room and brooded for a while. Right? So this affects other contingencies and behaviors. Punishment does. This is one of the reasons that uh, in like application, it, it often doesn't work very well. Because what you're doing is you're making one behavior less likely, but you're also suppressing, like a suppression, a whole bunch of other behaviors as well. It's like a CR. say that we shouldn't even use that four uh, panel kind of 
chart. Instead, we should think of a punishment as a discriminative stimulus that just says the following contingencies are now active. Right? So that, not a lot of people say that. I've heard it said. Let's say that. Now, punishment can control behavior. Uh, it's got its problems, but can it control behavior? Hell yes. So, if it can control behavior, and you've got so an application setting. So what I'm talking about here, and most of you don't have children. Uh, you all were children at some point. But I think most of you don't have kids. But, this is where we think, when I think of punishment, I think of somebody hitting a kid. I think of spanking. I don't mean like punching the face. You know, I don't know how a child would be, so I'm talking about spanking. Also, consider child abuse, but that's all the discussion. So, what's the downside that a punishment? In other words, why don't you hit your kids or wash their mouth out the sun? Well, first of all, fear and anger are really bad for learning. So, if suddenly my son or my daughter, well, Maddie's 19, I think, you know. Then again, if you know Maddie's boyfriend's like Nathan could come after me and protect her. Kick that kid's ass, no problem. Um, <laughs> he'll like that I've said that, I'll tell him that. But like when she was younger, or with John's mother, um, being frightened at your parents and being angry at them isn't good for learning. It's suppression, isn't it? Right? So do I want to suppress my kids learning other stuff by having them be frightened of me? Probably not. Right? Do I want to have conditioned emotional response to me? When I come home from work, do I want my kids to just cower in the corner and not do their homework? Or anything else they're doing? Well, no, that isn't good for them. So I think that's the downside. So it's general suppression of all behavior, not even just learning. It's just going to be general suppression of behavior. And I guess that's good if you're of the opinion that children should be seen and not heard. I don't know what I threw that accent on for, but it seemed appropriate. You will speak when spoken to. I'm not running a platoon. Though I have a feeling my son would find it fun. You know, that turned into some sort of military thing at home at some point. You walk around with it's like Call of Duty. You also have to constantly monitor the behavior. Because you have to give it after every single time the behavior happens, you got to watch everywhere. And I don't know about you guys, were you different at home than you were in elementary school? I was. You're a different person. You know, wait, hey, look, I'm going to actually, we're going to hear this. There is some use in social psychology. And... <laughs> Part of that is that this, this, the situation does help determine behavior. I really hope you hear that. <coughs> no, good. Okay. So the situation does affect behavior. There's no argument. Right? And I was told, you know, I, I've watched my son in school. My son, who uh, has autism, at home he runs around full speed. He's going, uh, sometimes just does that. Just booting around the house. And then he stops for a second, and then he does it again. 
He never does that at school. At school, he sits up at his desk, puts his hand up, does homework. Sits there, does his printing. At home, he's got headphones on watching plane crashes on YouTube. And just yelling about it. Doesn't happen at home. It doesn't happen at school. I think, because like, I think they have YouTube blocked in school. Which I'm sure he'll figure out how to get around at some point. We become different people in different situations, right? So, well, what I would have to do is I would have to monitor. If I wanted to stop him from my, and he doesn't do this, but if he, if he swore, which is amazing considering it comes out of him, and his sister, his sister kind of dude. Um, let's say Jonathan started swearing a lot. As I said, when he's older, he probably will. I would have to follow him around everywhere I went and watch his mouth out with soap everywhere he went. I have to quit my job. Then how would I afford the soap? You know, Eli isn't that much, I'd be out of soap. I have no money, whole system falls apart. You have to watch somebody constantly. <coughs> because you have to give it after every single behavior. You can't give it on a schedule. They need to avoidance learning. We know we just talked about avoidance learning, so what do people do? What do they do? They just stay in a situation where they're going to get caught. What do you learn? What did you ever learn, really, when your parents actually punished you? Don't get caught. That's what you learned, right? You learned that after the first time your parents smelled alcohol in your breath when you were 15, and they grabbed you for two weeks, what did you do? You learned, I did, did you learn to eat peanut butter a lot. Right? And by the way, your parents always know they aren't stupid. Parents aren't stupid. They know if you smoke, they know if you drink. Unless they're completely out to lunch, they know these things. Because they, they can smell cigarette smoke on you. They can smell. Parents aren't so unhipped that they don't know what the smell of weed is. And the red bloodshot eyes when you walk in going, hey, I'm on fine, it's ready to eat. They know what that is. smack their kids. Most of them. Right? It's like, oh, yeah, I'll let that happen. Right? I remember, I won't say it was, it was really punishment, it was usually like negative reinforcement, my parents would take something away, and you get granted says, but it's kind of idea, because I remember it'd be like, you know, you go upstairs and you don't uh, you know, stay in your room. Well, we were never kids. Um, and then after about 20 minutes, my daddy comes upstairs and goes, yeah, so uh, you learned your lesson. Can you do that again? Okay, go Because you're reluctant to say you have to stay in your room for a weekend. Like, that's not, that's not a prison. You're reluctant to hit, happily most people are reluctant to hit their kids. Right? So because of that, even with if they're people that believe in spanking, right? Even if that's the case, they're still reluctant to hit kids, which, you know, is good. 
it can have really bad consequences. Like, it can kind of get out of hand. Um, have you ever thought about this? If you hit a kid hard enough, you can kill them. I'm serious. Right? Now, it is illegal in Canada. It is illegal in Canada to hit a kid uh, in the groin. And it is illegal to hit the head. But anywhere else, using, quote, reasonable force is legal between the ages of 2 and 12. By the time they become 12, in other words, when they can fight back, it's illegal. And when they're babies, it's, uh, you know, it's illegal. But seriously, a little bit too hard, and you bring it home. You can't bring them back. They don't come with Apple Care. It's not like you just bring it into the genius bar and some guy exchanges it for you. It's a person. So the consequences really can be bad. Frankly, it's just me. <laughs> so now I'm going to be I'm, now I'm going to editorialize. If I hit, who am I going to hit? I hit Kendall. <laughs> He's standing. If I hit him, I go to jail. Right. I'm probably a good lawyer and I could maybe beat the rap, but none of you guys really care, right? You all turn around and I didn't see anything. Wait, wait, No, no. When two adults fight, it's against the law. However, if my son, who's some of you pet joggers about that big, he probably weighs more than I, uh, and that's not saying anything about you, He's, my son's a big boy. If I hit him, it's totally fine. Got a hand. So he has no rights, apparently. My kid has no rights. You have rights. You guys all, but the kid has none. When he hits 12, you guys can't hit him. Then apparently have to reason with him. So I just don't understand why that's legal. I don't understand why people do it. Now, I'm biased. I was never hit as a kid. Uh, I know my mom never was. I my dad. But my mom never was either. And we'd never hit our kids. Because it's just like, you know what works better? Reinforcement. It's easier to do. You reinforce behaviors you like, it's a lot easier to do. Like it's a lot easier because you only do it on schedule. You have to do constant monitors. I can say if you do 10 of these, you get one of these, and it works better than you're doing it every time. It's easier to be nice to people. It's easier to reinforce behavior that you like. Right? This is the same reason, by the way, that when you come home with your dog's taking a crap on the floor, and it's two hours later, you don't hit the dog. The dog's not gonna learn. They, the dog's gonna learn? That guy's an asshole. That's what the dog's gonna learn. I'm afraid of that guy. Dog's not gonna learn not to poop the dog. dog, dog if you catch the dog pooping on the floor, as he did, I can see it work out. But it's never going to learn, you know, people say, well, you, you rub his nose in it. Oh, well, that's good. That's calling. You really are a humanitarian. I just don't understand this kind of behavior. This, I don't get it. I really don't. I, I, I see no reason that it's, it just, it's, and it's harder to do. 
There's behavior you don't like, you say don't do that again, and then there's behavior you like, you do more of that. And if they're doing stuff you like, they by definition cannot be doing stuff you don't like. Yes? Does that make sense? My kids have done things they weren't supposed to do. Right? Jonathan called 911 on Isabel's phone the other day. I told you that? Don't do that. Yeah, he got granted for that, that's for sure. Got stuff taken away. You can get him. I'm pretty sure John can take Isabel anyway. <laughs> Big kid. This is very easy to learn. This kind of stuff takes one or two trials, animals learning, so big deal. Right? Um, now, you gotta remember all this stuff about punishment, and me and my, I, I believe, passionate yet entertaining editorial. You gotta remember data and morality are two different things. So, yes, punishment controls behavior. Hell yeah, of course it does. It's just harder to do. Than, than we can possibly enforce it. But it works. There's no doubt no about that. It works. Or negative reinforcement. They, you know, positive reinforcement work a lot better than punishment. Right? So I'm not saying, as a, when I was a kid, we didn't get negative reinforcement, right? We didn't have privileges taken away. My allowance, my allowance getting dogged, things like that. And yet we were here. My mom would threaten it sometimes, but we knew she wasn't going to do it. And then when she was, she, one day, I was, that guy was 50 and my brother was 13, and she pulled out this wooden spoon that she used to threaten us, but she never ever once hit us. And my, my brother and I started laughing at her. And she's pretty laughing at her. I said, Mom, I'm six feet tall, 180 pounds, and you're this little woman, I can outrun you? I, I know you're not going to hit me. And my brother started laughing, and then so did she, and we all laughed, and it was fun, fun, fun. And then, and then the credits rolled. It was like a bad sitcom. But you gotta remember, it will work. I'm just saying it's harder to do. It's harder to do. But yeah, it works. Of course it works. Alright. Any questions on that stuff? Nothing? Do you want to do the next one or do you want quit early? I was quit. <laughs> wow. Okay. All right. We'll uh, pack it in for today. I'll start looking at the advanced software finishing stuff next time. Thanks, guys. Quit early. Hate school.
This podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.